and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. In recent weeks, Turkey has been grabbing the headlines with a series of major moves in the international arena. Just a few days ago, Turkish President Erdogan stoked anxiety in the United States and Europe when he warned that when he warned Greece that a missile could hit Athens, raising tensions in the long-running bilateral dispute with Greece. This, of course, follows Turkey's testing of a short-range ballistic missile in October. Meanwhile, Turkey continues to royal U.S. and European efforts to isolate Russia. Erdogan and President Putin are reportedly discussing making Turkey a regional hub for Russian natural gas headed to Europe. All of this is occurring against the backdrop of Turkey's increasingly contentious position within the NATO alliance, including its delays in approving membership bids by Finland and Sweden, as well as opposition from other allies to Turkey's military action against the Syrian Kurds. To discuss the implications of these developments in Turkish foreign policy for European security and transatlantic relations, we're very happy to have both Stephen Cook and Asla Ayan Tashbash. And I don't know if I said that perfectly, Perfect. uh, but I tried. Um, welcome, Stephen and Asla. Great pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Um, quick bios for our listeners. Stephen is a senior fellow for Middle East and African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's an expert on Arab and Turkish politics, as well as U.S. Middle East policy. And Asla is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Prior to joining the foreign policy community, she had a long career in journalism, during which she focused on Turkey, its domestic evolution, and foreign policy in an age of regional reshuffling and geopolitical competition. Um, Stephen, I'm going to start with you because you can give the U.S. perspective, and we have so many issues that we'll dive into in more detail, but if we just start with the broad arc of the story, um, where are we in U.S.-Turkey relations? Well, uh, we're not in a good way, and we haven't been in a good way with Turkey for, for quite some time. Of course, we've tried to paper over some differences because of the crisis in Ukraine and the Russian invasion. Of course, Turkey is an important member of NATO, but there are a long list of differences between the United States and Turkey. And just on Ukraine, the Turks have not sanctioned Russia. There is the issue that you raised in your, your opening about uh, Russia and Turkey in talks about making Turkey a hub for Russian natural gas. Um, there has been the development of Russian Turkey economic relations, and Russia is helping Turkey build a, a, a nuclear program. And then, if you go back, you know, it, it more, you know, further, there are differences, obviously, between Turkey and NATO over Turkey's purchase of a Russian air defense system uh, called the S four hundred, which resulted in Turkey getting um, thrown out of the F thirty five program, which caused a significant amount of tension. Of course, from the Turkish perspective huge differences in anger at the United States for its support for a Syrian Kurdish fighting force called the People's Protection Units, which have been instrumental in helping the United States fight the Islamic State, but is also an outgrowth or directly related to or part of uh, the Kurdistan Workers Party, known more broadly as the PKK, which has been waging a war on Turkey since 1984. Um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And of course, President Biden and President Erdogan don't have the same kind of personal chemistry that um, President Trump enjoyed with the Turkish president or in first part of the Obama administration. President Obama and President Erdogan seem to have a very uh, strong personal tie. So um, all of these things combine to make for a very difficult relationship between the United States and Turkey. Yet it doesn't diminish the fact that Turkey is a very important member of NATO. Uh, it's located in a very important place uh, and is playing uh, an important role as, you know, the keeper of the of the Bosphorus Straits and the, the way into the Black Sea. Turkey has successfully negotiated uh, a deal that would get Ukrainian grain out to the world markets, which is very, very important given the food insecurity that we saw in the spring and summer. So it's a very complicated relationship. Um, everybody always wants to spitball and say, is this the lowest point in US-Turkey relations? Is this? I don't think it really matters. Um, there are a long list of grievances on both sides that we have not been able to overcome. Um, and what about from the Turkish side, Asa? How would you, what, what, what would you tell a similar story from from the Turkish perspective? Well, 
I think uh, Steve touched upon some of the key issues, but the nature of the relationship has changed so much. Before we even get to the topics of divergence, I am old enough, and I think maybe I can say the same about Steve, but we're old enough to remember people going around this town with Turkish and Ameri- with pins with Turkish and American flags and everyone calling our Turkey our staunch ally, our staunch ally, our staunch ally. I kept hearing that word when I was uh, covering Turkey and Turkish-American relations as a journalist uh, a decade ago, two decades ago. And I don't want to go down further in that uh, timeline, but um, that was a, a relationship that was born out of the Cold War, primarily on defense cooperation, later on energy. Turkey was a bulwark against the Soviets back in the days of the Cold War. And later on, it was very important in containing Iraq and sort of in NATO's eastern flank. Everything has changed in that equation in the sense that... Yes, there are problems in the Turkish-American defense relationship, but it's also the case that Turkey is more self-reliant on its defense, homegrown defense industry, very ambitious defense industry. It's not just drones, it's, you know, trying to make submarines and and, uh, now working on, uh, you know, its own uh, armored vehicles, it's exporting a whole bunch of uh, working on its uh, basically um, even uh, own uh, fighting uh, jet fighters and all of that. I mean, still ways out, but Turkish tanks, Altai tanks. And so less need certainly for uh, for U.S. defense industry, though Turkey is still keen to buy F-16s. But there's also a whole sea of change in terms of how th- Turkey under Erdogan thinks of itself in the world order, no longer really thinking of itself as a loyal transatlantic ally. I mean, I think the self-confidence and sometimes a little bit of an exaggerated self of self-confidence is so big now. I think Erdogan uh, is clearly thinking Turkey is destined to be a great power in an age of great power competition. Sometimes I think he describes Turkey in the Turkish language domestic narrative as a risen power. And that's of course an exaggeration, but certainly a rising power. And he's built an entire national consensus on that, that we are on our own, only us and everything else is is transactional. And that as such has changed the political culture uh, and I think the security culture in Turkey. And the coup attempt did not help in the sense that the 2016 coup attempt was described essentially as a Western-backed plot by Turkey. Uh, It's everyone against us and we have no one to, you know, so that narrative both helps domestically when you're trying to galvanize votes, but it has created a certain security culture that led to a bunch of decisions in terms of Turkish military uh, expanding Turkey's military footprint, Turkish incursions in Syria, in Libya, in the Caucasus, which essentially describe Turkish foreign policy as a course, a strategically autonomous course. Turkey is seeking strategic autonomy. And that's very different from Turkey of a decade ago, two decades ago. So all that is the in terms of describing the problem issues that Steve touched upon, the uh, US support for Syrian Kurds or, or you know, S-400, obviously congressional uh, strong uh, criticism of Turkey's purchase of S-400, and the fact that Turkey essentially has a semi-neutral position when it comes to Ukraine. Yes, selling drones and supporting Ukraine by way of, uh, you know, restraining Russian, not blocking entirely, but restraining, you know, restricting Russian access to the Black Sea, but on the other hand, very deep, much deepening its relationship with Russia, with uh, which has a strong economic component, uh, tr- Turkish-Russian trade is tripled, 
Turkey is clearly economically benefiting from the sanctions, not going with the sanctions, but also benefiting from uh, Western sanctions on Russia. And of course, you know, uh, Russians have, uh, you know, Turk's dream uh, natural gas pipeline that talk, that goes directly into Turkey. You've talked about Erdogan and Putin uh, talking about and publicly announcing that they'd like uh, Russian gas to come to Turkey as a new energy hub. And of course, Russians are building Turkey's first nuclear reactor in a deal that is very, you know, that's very controversial in Turkey. They're owning the nuclear reactor. They will own nu the nuclear react reactor for years to come. So all of these are, this is not your grandmother's Turkey. And it is certainly thinking of multipolarity, multipolar world, great power competition and thinking of itself, preparing itself as a, a you know, as a swing state in that. You know, I know well, that's the quote of the pot. We have to, that's the quote of the podcast. This is not your grandma's Turkey. So that's I, what, that's what, that might be the title. That's I know, I know Jim wants to get in. Also popular for Thanksgiving, but. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I know Jim wants to get in here, but I, I, I do, there's just a couple of strands that I want to pick up on, on Asha's. One I want to agree with and one I want to extend. One, uh, it, to kind of kind of wrap it up, you know, Turkey doesn't want to be seen or be just an asset to NATO or an outpost of NATO in the southeastern part of Europe. It wants to be an actor in and of itself and seen as not just a regional actor, but a power in and of itself in the Mediterranean, in the Caucasus, in Europe, in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, which is the segue into my other, my, my other point. Ashley's quite right. Um, and you don't have to have your hair inflected with gray like mine to remember this. Um, you know, when the Justice and Development Party came to power in late 2002, and then Erdogan became the president in March 2003, it wasn't that long after the attacks on New York and Washington in 2001. And here was this party of Islamist patrimony that promised the world that it would be Muslim Democrats. It was kind of this, this, this Islamist third way. And everybody in Washington latched down into this. These were young, dynamic Islamists who wanted to join the European Union. It was a, a, an extraordinary antidote to the kind of darkest interpretations of Islam that uh, had reached out across the oceans and attacked the United States. So I think um, that is why in for years you couldn't swing a dead cat in Washington and not hit someone wearing a turkey American flag lapel pin or friends. Uh, the U.S.-Turkey Friendship Caucus on Capitol Hill was enormous was enormous. These days, it's the opposite. It's very, very hard to find a friend of Turkey uh, in Washington, and in particular on Capitol Hill, which has really been in the mood to punish Turkey for its perceived transgressions. Well, thank you very much. I, I, uh, I That's both of what you all said. I'm very comprehensive and very complete. And, and uh, I have more gray hair than you guys. And I remember a time where, particularly uh, the Turkish military, uh, had very close relations with the U.S. And we would go off and have um, annual conferences that last a couple of days. And it was quite a, uh, uh, a, a close relationship there. And the MFA, too, the foreign ministry uh, in Turkey and our State Department and then the whole interagency or U.S. Mission NATO, some of my closest uh, colleagues were Turkish. Um, and so my, my question for you is, um, how deep today does this go into the bureaucracy in Turkey in terms of a negative view of the US or or is this something that's really certainly more visible and more influential at the Erdogan level among his people and this type of thing? And I know after the the, the coup, but also um, uh, even before the coup, there was the, the purges going through the Turkish military. So a lot of the pro-US folks that have disappeared uh, uh, you know, because of uh, retribution from the coup and the, the purges. But is there still within the bureaucracy, within the Turkish military and within the foreign ministry, um, a, a core of pro-U.S. Uh, or transatlanticists or pro-NATO uh, um, officials? Or is that really, they're gone too. And it's really the Erdogan outlook and the Erdogan tactics is something that goes down into the Turkish bureaucracy as well. I would say there's a, there's a huge amount of anti-Western, anti-American sentiments in the public space and within bureaucracy. There certainly are transatlanticists 
but very few in number and hiding in their corners. I have personally been criticized and attacked uh, viciously, and I think unfairly sometimes for being uh, pro-Western and for defending Turkey's place within uh, the transatlantic uh, community um, because uh, you don't have stakeholders, you don't have people that speak out and publicly defend uh, Turkey's place in NATO or relations with the West. Uh, you know, democracy in the past, the the, the mood that uh, Steve has described, a time when, you know, Islamists, even conservatives were pro-European, pro-EU, pro-Western, thinking of this as also a way to expand and improve Turkish democracy, which would also in turn benefit them. Those days are gone. Uh, the, the, the government and official speak is very openly anti-American, even though you, know, you see the, uh, President Erdogan trying to get meetings with Biden, getting angry when he can't have a one-on-one, -on -one when he speaks in, in Turkey in public, you know, he's very critical of the West. Uh, other officials are even more so, you know, I mean, Minister of Interior, quite a hardliner, even going so far as to a, uh, say United States is trying to uh, import LGBT, you know, trying to make us all non-binary. I mean, really, this is a, 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 almost a verbatim quote. So, uh, you know, trying to uh, build a Turkish nationalist sentiment around the sense of anti-Westernism but also being having a transactional relationship with the West. So let me go to values. Uh, the reason I mentioned values and anti-Westernism and how that's coupled, I mean, there has been a change in what Turkey is in terms of its governance model, President's, um, uh, President Erdogan actually going for a, what is essentially described as a one-man system by many uh, really consolidating powers. I mean, all that kind of has been in parallel with the divergence from the West. And divergence from the West has come with divergence from Western values and essential basic notions of liberal democracy. Are there Democrats in Turkey? Yes. Are there transatlanticists? Yes. There are also liberals, but there also is a huge nationalist segment, which may be pro and anti or anti-government. There is something called anti-American liberalism in Turkey. And it's you have to be Turkish to understand this. But, you know, uh, opposition uh, voices that are very critical of the West or U.S., but are uh, criticizing the government on democratic grounds. And similarly, you have nationalists and, and Erdogan's nationalist allies and all. So it's a big ideological mess. And I think it, the, 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 the most difficult position right now is to be a transatlanticist and pro-Western voice in Turkey. I uh, have uh, seen that people are keeping quiet and, um, and also in the public space uh, and within bureaucracy. Uh, you know, nationalism is the name of the day. Let me let me respond directly to Jim's question about the military. Um, I, I think you know when we look back on the strategic relationship between Turkey and the United States, we we tend to look back on it with some rose-colored glasses, uh, and we tend to you know accept some of the kind of nice narratives about fighting together in Korea and Turkey being this, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder together on the Anatolian landmass against, you know, the Russians. But I do think that the, the, the relationship between the United States, the military to military relationship, the security relationship was something that was built in the Cold War, that there was a common perception of overarching threat from the Soviet Union. And right. now as we are, you know, 30 plus years after the Soviet Union, those, these, militaries, those relationships no longer exist. There's a divergence uh, in, in, in views and in that what we, the way we can think about the military in Turkey is first, these are nationalists par excellence. And so, and they were nationalists par excellence during the Cold War. It's just that the overarching threat drove them to the strong relationship with the United States and the West more generally. Um, without that threat, it's a much different situation. And then it's important to remember that Early on in the Justice and Development Party's tenure, um, the, they did as the party, the government as part of European Union um, accession, brought the military under civilian control. Um, but in later, which was good, it was 
it, it was a positive development. It helped Turkey get a formal invitation to join uh, to begin negotiation uh, over formal membership. But then in subsequent years, that civilian control kind of changed. It became what Samuel Huntington, the theorist of civil military relations, would have called subjective military control. And that meant that Erdogan and the political leadership were they were that officers were bound to them. And, and, and that creates differences and and tribes and groups within within the military. And now think back on arguably from 2008, 2009, when this really started to happen. What has happened is that Erdogan and his, in particular, his current defense minister, Hulusi Akar, have really remade the officer corps. A huge percentage of the officer corps have been appointed by Erdogan and Hulusi Akar. And, and that has made for a very different kind of, of military than, than we used to know. Uh, in keeping with the theme that, that Ashla brought up before, uh, this is not your grandmother's Turkish armed forces. It's a, it's a, different, it, it's a different thing. And it, it doesn't share the same kind of strategic view or the values um, that uh, that that brought it together with with NATO. So really, when you look at it, the idea that um, you know, if once Erdogan uh, passes from power and there's a new government in, that we'll kind of go back to the way things were, given how deep uh, into the bureaucracy and and had, given the great turnover in people within the foreign ministry, within the military, this type of thing. Uh, there's no there's no flipping back to that relationship uh, to the way it was. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be not your grandmother's uh, Turkish government from now on. Well, you know, this is a, this is a subject of debate among Turkey analysts. And I and, and I'm certainly of the view that there has been too much change, too much institutional change whether institutions have been hollowed out, whether new institutions have been discovered to serve Erdogan and his political interests, that it's the, and, and then the phenomenon, what you're talking about, Jim, is, is the kind of fundamental change in outlook and something that Ashley touched on as well. It, it, I find it hard to believe that there's going to be some sort of snapback to, you know, a, a, an era uh, that we look back on, I think, again, with rose-colored glasses, of, of strategic coordination and sharing of values. But I, I don't think that that's possible. I think that there are, Erdogan has been in power now for 20 years and is seeking to be in power longer. We have elections coming up in 2023. I think it's it's hard for me to imagine, maybe I'm not creative enough, but it's hard for me to imagine that this has not created a new trajectory for Turkey. Um, that may not mean that after Erdogan, that it's as stable as we've come to uh, expect in Turkey, but I don't think we're going back to the way things were. Um, too much has changed. Yeah, also you can weigh in on that, but I'll just say, I mean, I, I'm not a Turkey expert, but putting on my like authoritarian glasses and everything we know about these personalist regimes, right? Like, I mean, all of your points, Stephen, about the way they hollow out institutions and sidelines. And then create path dependencies to be yeah, political. It has long lasting right. effects, right? right? And like, I mean, even if you just look at the very quantitative, like a personalist authoritarian regime very rarely gives way to democracy because the ground simply is not fertile for that to happen. So like that, that, that the personalization of a political system has long, casts a long shadow over the political system. But well, also, I if you want to weigh in, I don't know if you have, if. Well, if I think, um, I think a bit differently and Steve and I have spoken about this and, uh, and also, uh, I, I, you know, we've, sort of disagreed on this. I am more hopeful about the elections. Erdogan can certainly win, but I still continue to think he could lose as well. Everything you said is true about the, you know, authoritarian lurch, for lack of a better word, and institutional makeup. And one of these institutions has been the, you know, judiciary, of course, that is with yesterday, we've seen the decision from an Istanbul court that ban that has banned uh, one of Erdogan's key rivals, the mayor of Istanbul, and slapped him with a political ban for insulting judiciary for having called. I mean, it's so Kafkaesque. I have to repeat it here for calling the decision <laughs> that led to his the annulment of. Uh, local election results, a dumb decision, 
uh, it was a dumb decision in the sense that uh, he had won by a narrow margin. The, there was government pressure on the courts and they annulled the election results. And he went back and won again this time with a big, uh, significant, uh, with a landslide. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, and uh, he responded to Minister of Interior, who had called him a, called him dumb, and uh, as a result, he slapped with a political. I mean, even by Turkish standards, that's too insane. But having said that, you know, I still think the ballot is important, and in that sense, Erdogan, Turkey is a little bit different than Russia, than certainly from China, and it's authoritarian, but not fully. Uh, a despotic regime, not uh, uh, a regime where elections do not matter. And it's because of that that I think Erdogan needs all these little instruments and levers and little games ahead of elections in order to level the playing field in his favor. Um, it still may backfire. And so I have, he's facing an anti Erdogan majority and opposition parties are united. It is true to go back to the previous conversation. It, it is true. What Steve has said is, I think, true. I can't imagine a return to the Western fold immediately the day after. But uh, I can still imagine an opposition win in next uh, May or June, whenever the elections are. Um, the question of which direction Turkey will take will will in large part depends on what happens in the world. In During World War II, Turkey was hedging, uh, hedging really openly between the Allies and Germany. And uh, they signed a defense cooperation agreement with Britain, and then they went and signed a similar one. They were selling this to Britain, but then selling that steel to Germany and all of that. And that ended when it became clear Germany would be defeated. I, I, I am sorry to put it so bluntly, but I think if Russia is defeated and Western supremacy in Europe, in European security architecture is established, I can see Turkey pivoting. Uh, if not, if it's sort of a free for all and, and a really uncertain chaotic in, environment, I, I can see Turkey continuing to hedge. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to lay this out on the CNS podcast, Brussels Sprouts, right here. If Erdogan loses fair and square and then retires to a villa in Rize or Bodrum or someplace, Asla Adetashbash can name whatever restaurant in any city, major city of the United States of America, and I will fly her there and take her there. <laughs> and she can have anything on the it's menu. A deal. It's this is amazing. This is okay. and I okay. don't you've you all heard that. I will I'm good. I'm good to do that. I just Again, maybe I'm not creative enough, but I this do is, not see him gracefully bowing out. But we'll see. You don't even have to, I, and I won't even ask anything if that doesn't happen. I'm just going <laughs> to say, you name it, Asa, we'll go. This is on the record now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's why I'm doing it. interest to roll up my sleeves and <laughs> help, win, so, help the opposition so, win. So now that we have now zoomed off into left field and into the cosmos, I'll throw some more spice into this. Uh Talk about uh, Erdogan and Ataturk and in terms of, you know, we all know we're familiar with Ataturk and, and what he did uh, with the uh, with the Robotoman Empire and you know, the incredible impact that he had in Turkey. Well, Erdogan's had a pretty good big impact, too. I mean, not quite the not quite the velocity, if you will, of, of change that Ataturk brought in. But certainly since Ataturk, I can't think of another Turkish personality. Uh, that had such an influence, and he was there for so long, uh, and uh, and put Turkey on this different trajectory. So, uh, tell me how wrong I am. Tell me, tell me that you're comparing apples and oranges. And Ataturk is in a whole other category than Erdogan. Erdogan's two bit, and Ataturk is a wonderful, you know. So, but 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 talk about that if you don't mind a little bit. I I have no shame. So 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 compare and contrast. Over to you. Who, who wants to go first, Asa? Go for it. Okay, well, I, I think, look, Ataturk is obviously this kind of global historic figure. I do think that Erdogan is so deeply committed to remaining president, especially in 2023 on the, on the 100th anniversary of the Republic, is that he can elevate himself to that level as the, as, as the most consequential Turkish politician since Ataturk and maybe even exceeding 
at a Turk. I mean, certainly, you know, you go to some of these AKP, you know, offices around places and 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 the Erdogan, the, the visage of Erdogan is always higher than than that of Ataturk. The stunning irony of this, of course, is that, you know, Islamists in Turkey have long thought of the Republic as being sort of a historical accident, um, that it wasn't the kind of natural progression uh, for there to be this strictly, you know, kind of on paper, secular republic that, is, you know, was oriented towards towards the West. And I think one of the things that's very, very interesting to see is how within the contours of the republic, Erdogan, as extraordinarily consequential, you know, altered the trajectory of Turkey, um, created a situation, an environment where religious values run through society easily um, in ways. Uh, our, our, our colleague and, and friend in the Turkey watching community, a scholar named Jenny White, has talked about uh, Muslimness or Muslimhood as, as, as kind of an, a, a way to express this idea about religious values becoming very, very important in Turkey and, and, and that they, they remain so. And I think that you have to give Erdogan his due on that, as well as kind of important developments in terms of the expansion of the middle class and infrastructure and, and those kinds of things. I think he is, I, I you know, I, I don't know how we are going to, you know, on balance in real time, say one is greater than the other, but I think undoubtedly Erdogan for all of his faults, I mean, I think he was Orban before there was Orban. Um, but I, I think he's extraordinarily consequential in, in, in Turkey, I, I, extraordinary politician, extraordinarily charismatic, um, and and has a right to say that he is the most consequential since Ataturk. I'm not sure he quite yet has the right to say that he exceeds or equals Ataturk. Is that is that acceptable, Jim? Did I sneak yeah, out of your you, question? Well, yes, no. I'll, you you can leave the classroom. Uh, we are now over to uh, the uh, the next well, view. Well. I I mean, I think um, there's interest. This is an interesting question. Um, Erdogan certainly does not identify with Ataturk because, for two reasons, I think because of secularism, uh, he prefers to identify with Sultan Abdulhamid, who reigned for 33 years from late uh, uh, 19th century to early 20th century. Um, he saw the opening of the first Turkish parliament, which he shut down and uh, and then was forced out by young Turks uh, in pushing for a reform process. Uh, things didn't work out later on, but he was essentially deposed and he but he ruled for 33 years and he has and refused to sell uh settle, uh, hand over Jerusalem for uh, Ottoman debt to the Zionist Congress. So for all these reasons, Erdogan has really reified him. There's television dramas about him. And to the extent that there is a historic figure, it is Abdul Hamid because of neo-Ottomanist sentiments, which is a new thing for Turkish Republic. It wasn't uh, around when I was growing up, going to kindergarten, going to uh, primary school in Turkey, there was no neo-Ottomanism. Ottomans were essentially described as a backward and failed project. I mean, okay, fine, proud of our past, especially the rise of the empire all the way until the 16th, 17th century, but then later on it was, it, it failed. And Erdogan turned it around and basically said, this republic, I mean, in much the same way uh, uh, Scott, uh, Steve has described, uh, this republic is a parenthesis. We go back to a period of expansion. We are. Ah, uh, that's very good. That's, we are that's, the uh, heirs of an empire. And so the republic, the modern secular republic, is the parenthesis. He is expanding Turkey, whereas Ataturk took over a country that was poor had contracted upon the ashes of an empire, to, to repeat a cliche. Everyone is now establishing bases in, in Qatar, in, in Horn of Africa. He's, you know, in Libya. He has military incursions in Syria, Iraq, in, uh, in Caucasus, etc. It's a different game. And as such, I, I guess... Um, you know, uh, Ataturk has been more consequential to Turks in terms of modern republic secularism, 
which was a guiding principle. Erdogan is geopolitically has been more consequential in that sense. Wow. Thank you both. That was just excellent. Well done. I was going to ask much more simple questions. <laughs> but you what both. Does Erdogan eat for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> but we've, you know, we're, we've talked a little bit about the election. So I wonder just if, if you could say a couple of words about, you know, how he's positioned ahead of the election. And then to the, the you know, to what extent do things like the flare up with Greece or his delay in and um, approving Finland and Sweden for NATO membership. Are those at all tied to the election? Is that part of the calculus? Um, or should we not view them through that lens, those, those particular events? Well, I, would it be, I, you know, you could, yes and no. I, I, certainly Erdogan finds himself in the, in, in the atypical situation of being relatively politically weak at the moment, and and which is why, as Asha mentioned a, a little while ago, uh, Ekrem Imamoglu, the mayor of Istanbul, who is a primary rival and who in head-to-head polls beats Erdogan, uh, is now facing a political ban and jail time for you know a, a, a kind of silly, silly charge. And so, if he would had a commanding lead, these kinds of things would 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 not happen. And I think we should expect more of them. His polling numbers were low. They've they've improved a bit, but again, it it doesn't seem like he is in the position where he's going to cruise to victory. And and Erdogan is a, I think, an extraordinarily shrewd politician. He is uh, paranoid, like good politicians should be, and he's doubly paranoid because he's a Turkish Islamist, and so that makes him uh, very careful in in how he chooses to pursue these uh, his his election campaigns. He's never satisfied. So I think he'll pull out all the stops, push every lever, pull every push every button, pull every lever in order to make it uh, happen for him, which is why I suggested to Ashla that if he loses and, and goes quietly, she can name the place. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to Greece, um, there is certainly an aspect to it where, you know, Greece is an obvious uh, counterpoint to Turkey, adversary to Turkey, and that, you know, to hang tough against uh, against Greece uh, kind of helps in a nationalist flank. Now, the, you know, the Turks have a, an, an argument that they believe is, is, is an important one. They believe that the Greeks are militarizing these, these islands. The Greeks say that they're not. Um, and that is why you have this kind of this rhetoric. If it is just election related, it is obviously uh, targeted at you know, kind of whipping up a nationalist sentiment. But of course, polling in, in, in Turkey suggests that many, many people know this and are discounting that kind uh, of rhetoric. But still, I think going forward, I think the Greeks and the Cypriots know that they are in the crosshairs for this kind of rhetoric. What's concerning about that is if there's a mistake and a miscalculation that you could have a very serious situation, particularly in the Aegean, in which two NATO allies are fighting with each other. And, you know, having been in Athens recently, the Greeks are kind of puffed up about this. They say, you know, this is not your grandmother's Greek military. We will respond in kind and the Turks will pay dearly for it. Um, then, you know, on you know, the, the the Sweden and Finland issue, I think it's important. Remember, we talked a bit about how um, Erdogan and the Justice and Development Party and constituency sees Turkey as a as a power in a number of different realms. And I think, you know, the Turks have what they believe to be legitimate concerns about Sweden and Finland, but it's also a way of demonstrating that Turkey is a big dog in NATO and that it can be influential. And that's why when the U.S. ambassador of Finland tweeted that he was confident that Turkey would, you know, come around, I, I tweeted back and said, I think Turkey is going to be the last one. Uh, to 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 okay, and I think that that's part of uh, an electoral strategy, and it's also part of this view, this kind of self-conscious view of Turkey as uh, a rising at you know regional power in in all of these different realms, and that Turkey is 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 important to the entire NATO enterprise, and that its concerns need to be addressed and adequately addressed before there can be an expansion. I think it accrues to his political benefit. How much we don't know but it also uh, reestablishes or reinforces the idea that Turkey is, a, is, is, is an important power. Also, do you wanna add anything to that or do, we, do you wanna go in a different direction? Um, I, on Sweden, Finland, I think 
President Erdogan will see how much he can get out of this. And the new Swedish government has gone to uh, Turkey. They said they're going to abide by uh, the memorandum that was signed at the NATO summit. I, I believe they've extradited a couple of people to Turkey that have been... I don't know the nature of the uh, of these uh, cases, but uh, at least some of them have certainly been cured so I, I, and may have may or may not have been linked to PKK activities. That's not clear to me. But all this is in the way of appeasing Turkey to get to a faster decision. And I don't think that will happen until the Turkish election unless. Americans come into the room. That is to say, I think uh, President Erdogan thinks he can get more out of this. And what he wants is not just a, a few more uh, political prisoners or extraditions. I think he wants U.S. to come in with big offer, F-16s, F-16s. And, you know, attention and all of that. And I don't think that will happen because I think people are very cautious about triangulating this relationship. There is frustration both on the Hill and in the administration about Turkey holding off the ratification process, but they seem to be debating on how much U.S. involvement is useful, whether it would actually bring up the price so much that it becomes an even more thorny issue. On Turkish-Greek stuff, my feeling, and it's impossible to know for a fact, and I'm not going to bet on this, not buying it, but my my hunch is that um, I think escalatory narrative rhetoric is more useful than an actual confrontation, which is what we are more likely to see. But again, I don't want to uh, uh, put a dinner on the table here as <laughs> part of this bet because these are dangerous things. I mean, there's dogfights, uh, you know, F-16s, uh, Turkish F-16s and Greek F-16s fighting over FIR lines. I think there is a deconfliction mechanism now established within NATO, and that's a very, very good idea. This should be taken care of in NATO. But what I know from covering Turkish-Greek relations going back to late 90s as a journalist is nothing has changed. There's a whole bunch of problem legal areas, uh, you know, because uh, Turkey, there are so many Greek islands close to mainland Turkey in the Aegean. These are about exclusive economic zones, continental shelf, FIR lines, uh, you know, uh, demilitarization of the islands and et cetera. None of these issues have moved an inch uh, what happens is when there's a good climate and Turkey gets along with the West, these issues disappear. Turkish-Greek relationship is all, you know, we uh, baklava and sirtaki and, uh, you know, we don't, we, aren't we best friends, etc. And then when there's a bad climate, it's dogfights and, you know, two countries uh, come to have come to the brink of war in, in mid 90s, I think, in 1996 with Imia, Kardak, a bunch of a small, small, tiny, inhabitable island. So all this is in the way of saying, I think we're more likely to see very, very explosive language, but no real kinetic action. And uh, and President Erdogan, uh, Erdogan's tone is very uh, irritating uh, and to Greek uh, politicians and vice versa. I, every time there's a there's a statement from Greece, you see that played out, blown up in Turkish media. But it's almost useful in an election space for both in both countries. And I hope it doesn't result in something more serious. And I hope we don't see an accident in that space anytime uh, in over the next few months. Let me Thanks. just jump in. Very yeah, quickly. well, Stephen, I know we have a, you for like two more minutes, and then we'll take it home with Asla. It you can touch on that, but I would also love a two minute take. So we've already danced around this on the Russia Turkey bit, and just if you know, we've talked about specific elements of that. But I mean, it, what your your view on on Turkey's approach to Russia and kind of the kind of principles that are guiding that relationship, because it's clearly complicated as as we've all acknowledged. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I was going to dive into the F-16 issue and who wants to deal with that. Um, just, just to make probably Jim, but I want to do the Russia piece. Just, so <laughs> just, just, I can do that in ten seconds. I think that if 
Erdogan gets the F-16s, it's a huge political win for him. If he doesn't get the F-16s, it's a huge political win for him. And that's the that's the benefit of sitting atop a political system where there's a vast reservoir of anti-Americanism. You've either taken advantage of the Americans and you've suckered them into getting you, yourself new F-16s, or they refuse to give them to him and see how terrible the Americans are. On Russia, and, and that's actually a nice segue into the, the question about Russia. I, I, I you know, I think there's been a lot that's been made about the Erdogan-Putin romance. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think that they have found that they are people who can do business with each other, which has accrued to some benefit in the Ukraine crisis, like the like the grain deal. But I think the Russia relationship is something that is part of this kind of strategic autonomy that Asla talked about before. What we used to talk about, what former foreign minister Ahmed Davutola talked about, a 360-degree foreign policy. And that, you know, if at a, at a level of abstraction, I think what Vladimir Putin and Recep Tayyip Erdogan actually share is the view that an American-led global order isn't necessarily in their best interest, because it means that neither, that, you know, it, for, for Russia, it means it loses at a global level. And for Turkey, it constrains its strategic autonomy. And that is, I think, a prime directive for foreign policy thinkers in Turkey across the political spectrum. And so I think that this kind of gray zone or neutral position that Turkey has taken on Russia's invasion of Ukraine actually suits Turkey very, very well. It it it, it irritates people in Washington. It, 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 it puts Congress in the mood to seek further ways to punish Turkey. But if you're sitting in Ankara, it actually makes a lot of sense, which is why I think in the foreign policy community, when people talk about Turkey being a bulwark against Russia, I really don't think that that's the case. I think um, it's not an alignment. It's not, but it is an exploration of how to improve relations with an important country in the world to preserve strategic autonomy. And I think we can expect more of it as uh, as the world changes. It's not the Cold War any longer. In any event, I do have to run. It's Thanks, been a wonderful Stephen. conversation. Thank you all very, very much. Thanks Cheers. so much. Asa, Thank over you. to you. Anything you want to add to that? Um, I mean, it is interesting to see. I mean, as we've you, you've already talked about, you know, providing the drones to Ukraine, um, standing up to Russia and pushing back uh, in order to get the grain deal um, extended. I mean, so they they are willing to do things that presumably irk and irritate and upset the Russians. And yet at the same time, you know, refusing to sanction, continuing to do business. I mean, they have been an important lifeline for the Russian economy. So it, 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 you know, again, like Stephen says, it makes sense from Ankara, but just explain the thinking a bit more. I mean, I think Turkey is thinking of itself more as a semi-neutral state and very cautious about not offending Putin. The language that's used in Turkey by officials or in the public space now about the war in Ukraine has none of the moral uh, components uh, of the uh, that that we see in 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 the Western public space, there is no criticism of Russia, no criticism of Russian atrocities and whatnot. It's instead Turkey thinks of it as a conflict between two powers at its neighborhood and is very proud. President Erdogan is very proud of what he calls a balanced policy. That is to say, this balancing act between the West and Russia. Turkish trade with Russia has tripled. And uh, Turkey is dependent on Russia for natural gas, and there's an understanding by Western partners uh, that it will continue to trade with Russia, cannot sever off. But there are there is gr growing worry, and Steve has talked about this uh, both on the Hill and 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 in Washington in general about um using russia using turkey uh, to uh, bypass sanctions for dual use items and to establish front companies and all so there's there's a constant conversation and awareness on this uh but i think from a turkish perspective this balancing act uh, that is to say being perhaps uh, 51% on the nato side but then also keeping open channels of communication with Kremlin is something that Erdogan feels is increasing Turkey's leverage, geopolitical leverage. 
on well economy but also in terms of being able to expand Turkey's uh, defense cooperation agreement and former uh, uh, with Soviet former Soviet republics in the Caucasus certainly in terms of um, you know continuing to get Russian gas and perhaps becoming a hub for Russian and Azeri uh, gas right now today Erdogan is in Turkmenistan talking to uh, presidents of Turkmenistan and uh, uh, Azerbaijan for a big mega gas deal that again using Turkey as a as a uh, as a hub, and then I think uh, Turkey is also feeling that uh, Erdogan is certainly clearly feeling that the economic relationship with Russia is critical for his survival at home. How so? Well, it's very simple. Turkey was facing a balance of payments crisis. It was it it has nothing. It had nothing early this uh, when the war started. It had nothing left in its central bank coffers. Uh, balance of payment crisis, another currency crisis, was something that economists uh, were almost unanimously saying would happen. And then we started seeing Russian funds, Russian trade, Russian tourists, Russian, and oh, 27 billion uh, net errors and omissions in Turkish economy from uh, the beginning of the year till end of August. 27 billion, that means 27 billion appeared in Turkish books that cannot be accounted for. Add to that his new uh New honeymoon, newly established relations with former rivals in this Persian in the in the Gulf Arab states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, also offering swap lines into Turkish central bank. All of a sudden, he has a chance to muddle through economically until the elections, and that is absolutely essential for his survival because elections in Turkey are funny in the sense that. At least despite everything we've talked about, various instruments of uh, coercive measures that he has, on the day of elections, it's it's been, you know, transparent and, and relatively uh, uh, fraud proof. So I think that uh, that is another element of the relationship with Russia. Uh, Turkey also has a very important relationship with Ukraine. Ukrainians are pro providing drones and engines for uh, engines for uh, Turkey's key top uh, national uh, defense projects. And some of its homegrown defense industry re requires Ukrainian drones. So it's sort of this interesting dance. Uh, I should say that Black Sea is interesting and probably uh, requires more thinking. It is right now pretty much uh, controlled by Turkey and Russia and is not is the countries uh, NATO allies and NATO countries in the Black Sea have not established a type of transatlantic uh, leverage in the Black Sea. My sense is that it's not a place Turkey wants to irritate Russia, not at a time like this. And so that may be uh, Black Sea may continue to be sort of a Russian sea and as long as this war continues, Russian and Turkish sea. But uh, this is a very interesting uh, balancing act, but very similar with, to what Turkey did during World War II. All right. I think we are at the end of time. This has been such a great conversation. As someone who doesn't follow Turkey very closely, I just learned an incredible amount, both about current events, but I feel like we got the like a real like zeitgeist, like a real sense of the way Turkey is headed. And I'm really thankful to you um, and to both and to Stephen, of course, for joining us. Um, and I hope we can check in again soon. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for my end as well. That was just, it's just wonderful. That reaffirms why I love working with Turkey and dealing with Turkey. It's, it's always an adventure. Well, I look forward to listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.